This episode is sponsored by Genentech, a biotechnology company dedicated to pursuing groundbreaking science to discover and develop medicines for people with serious or life-threatening diseases. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Galrasso in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I'm involved in JDR Dermatology Research and also um, Senior Vice President of Clinical Research and Strategic Development for Advanced Dermatology and Cutaneous Surgery. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk to uh, Dr. Brent Moody, who is joining us from Nashville. Uh, exciting city, but not only known for music, but also has some people that are pretty good in dermato-oncology, which is an area that he's focused on, does dermatology and most surgery in Nashville, Tennessee. So welcome, Brent, and it's great to have you here. Thanks. I'm uh, honored to speak with you today, Jim. So I know it's, this is going to be very valuable, so certainly to me, and, and a, something that a lot of people don't know, and it's one of the reasons why I'm calling you, because you are doing a Mohs surgery and dermatologic surgery and cutaneous oncology uh, predominantly in what you do in clinical practice. I've been a general dermatologist who was trained in Mohs surgery. I did a fellowship in Mohs surgery years back, but incorporated that as part of my uh, general dermatology practice and would do it with some other clinicians. But I've forgotten some things or I've lost track of some things with a variety of different interests over the year. That's why I'm calling you today because I, I have some questions about management of non-melanoma skin cancers is what I want to focus on. And one of the things I remember back when I was a fellow. Um, we, we, Ron Siegel, the guy who trained me, great guy at Ohio State, he said, well, I, he got a call from Ron Wieland, who was uh, very well known at that time, who was putting together a textbook, and he wanted someone to write management of basal cell carcinoma. So Ron looked at me and said, guess what your fellowship project is? And got very involved in looking at a lot of detail and a lot of references on basal cell carcinoma. And one of the things that really rang true with me is that all basal cell carcinomas are obviously not created equal. And there are certain histologic subtypes which are more aggressive potentially in terms of, of extensive spread beyond what you visibly see. For someone like myself who's doing a lot of general dermatology and assume that I'm not someone that does most surgery in this case, right? Mm -hmm. Are there histologic subtypes that clinicians should hold their dermatopathologists accountable for, assuming there's an adequate biopsy, to give them direction in terms of what the biologic nature of that basal cell is going to be in terms of subclinical spread or extension of the of the type of lesion or even greater perineural invasion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, whenever I'm confronted with a patient with basal cell carcinoma, I mean, step one is to, you know, look at the cancer, see how big it is, see where it's located. You know, look at the patient. How old is the patient? What's their general health? Uh, the things that we all do every day as dermatologists but then really I got to focus in on that pathology report. And this is where having a great dermatopathologist and a good relationship with the dermatopathologist really makes um, a big difference in figuring out how to approach any particular skin cancer. So for basal cell carcinoma, you know, I, I want to look at um, things like if they comment on depth of invasion, if they comment on a known histologic subtype that we 
uh, generally recognized can be a little more aggressive. And those are going to be buzzwords you look for. Infiltrative, morpheiform, micronodular, uh, basal squamous. Certainly if perineural invasion is noted, uh, you need to be, make, be aware of that. It, it doesn't have quite the same implications as it does with squamous cell carcinoma. But those are some of the things, certainly, that if you see that in the PATH report, you need to factor that in your, your thinking and decision-making with that patient. Do you uh, give any credence to, and this is something I always wondered about, and my thinking about it and what I've read has changed over the years, the amount of inflammation within the tumor. And I used to think, well, that's the body trying to, to fight it. But we know that that's not necessarily the case uh, with, with basal. Does it matter to you if it's basically devoid of inflammation or if there's a lot of inflammation within the lesion with basal cell carcinoma? Not particularly other than I'm, I'm already thinking if, if that's noted on the pathology report, I need to go back and say, hmm, does this patient have an underlying condition I need to be aware of? Does this patient have CLL that maybe is undiagnosed? Um, you know, we've had instances where uh, the first indication that a patient has a blood uh, cancer comes from a skin biopsy specimen that's just full of lymphocytes. So, you know, something like that may be important. But also, if I'm thinking this patient's going to uh, be a good candidate for most surgery, I'm thinking, is that inflammation going to make looking at those slides more challenging is perhaps that inflammation going to mask tumor. So I think in the, in the realm of, of basal cell carcinoma, I, I don't really worry about it from a uh, aggressiveness standpoint of that tumor or a patient morbidity or mortality standpoint, but it can have some practical implications to treating that patient. So what about mixed histology or even the depth of a biopsy? And one of the things that I'm cautious with when training residents or students or even physician assistants and nurse practitioners that are just starting out in dermatology, they may be gun shy about scarring patients, but if they don't get an adequate depth to a biopsy, obviously you can get the wrong read, but you're not necessarily going to get a true read on the histology and you may miss some of their mixed histology in the deeper aspects of the tumor. How often do you run into that when you get referrals and you're looking at the original uh, report that suggests a non-aggressive tumor and it turns out to be more aggressive. Yeah, frequently we'll find the more aggressive aspects of a tumor are deeper in the tumor. So, um, you know, you got to be aware of that. And when you're confronted with a, a basal cell carcinoma and you have a PATH report that indicates it would be a, a more superficial tumor, you have to make sure that that's really going to be reflective of the entire histology of that tumor. And sometimes you honestly just don't know until you get into it. Um, and I agree with you, uh, uh, you know, depth of uh, biopsy is important. If you're suspecting a lesion may be deeper, you know, it really helps to get into the dermis uh, to, to get a better sample to help you with that. Okay. So let's move on to some newer areas. We're getting more into some medical therapies for non-melanoma skin cancers. So obviously, we have a, we all have a lot of background on on surgery and understand where most surgery is valuable. But with the with the hedgehog inhibitors, can you, you basically, given a nutshell, explain for me so I understand these? What are they actually doing with in basal cell carcinoma? So the 
the basic science on hedgehog inhibitors is actually really interesting. And it's just so great for dermatology that we found a genetic defect in basal cell carcinoma, which in the, in the large proportion of them is a defect in a gene called patched. And then we found a, a, a molecule and there's a series of molecules that interact with that pathway and can basically turn it off. So we have this defective, what's called the sonic hedgehog pathway, and we have found molecules, uh, hedgehog inhibitors, that turn that pathway off and really can be very valuable in basal cell carcinoma. And so thinking about the non-surgical therapy of basal cell carcinoma, I mean, when I was a resident, um, it's when people first started toying around with using amiquimod as a topical therapy for basal cell carcinoma. And it just seemed so revolutionary at the time. Uh, and, and now we have uh, really this uh, oral therapy, um, which really can help the dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. I think having access to these non-surgical therapies makes me a better surgeon. Now, which was the first hedgehog inhibitor that became available? So the first FDA-approved hedgehog inhibitor was Vismotigeb. The trade name is Aravedge. Okay. And now I believe there's more than one that's available now. There's an, there's, I think there's two on the market? There are two FDA-approved. So the one I mentioned, the Vismotigeb, and then Sonodegib, which goes by the trade name Odomzo. Okay, so I've had m most of what I've encountered is is um, is the Visma Dajib, and then and the questions that I have about it, we obviously know for metastatic lesions or or inoperable lesions. But I was wondering, how do you select patients that you feel are candidates, whether it be an on-label use or or times when you just find this to be helpful to you, even if you're anticipating doing surgery? Because we don't see a lot of metastatic lesions, correct? We, if we do, obviously, this would come into play. Yeah, fortunately, metastatic basal carcinoma is very rare, so it's not something we're going to encounter on a, with any frequency. You know, when I think about non-surgical options, when I think about using a hedgehog inhibitor, uh, the patients fall into several categories. Um, there's the category of just a really big cancer, you know, it's just big and surgery would be deforming or it would be technically challenging. Um, so just really big ones. And then I sort of go back to, it's like real estate, you know, location, location, location. So it's really easy to take a fairly large piece of someone's cheek or their back or their arm it's not easy to take a big piece of someone's eyelid, lip, nose, or ear. So I'm, I'm more likely to use a hedgehog inhibitor if I think surgery is going to be really difficult in one of those high-risk uh, anatomic locations. And then it just comes to the multiples. You know, we all unfortunately have these patients who have, they come in and they've got four, five, six, ten plus basal cell carcinomas. And in that case, any sort of therapy other than systemic therapy gets really challenging. It's hard to do surgery on six or seven or eight basal cells. It's hard to do radiation on six or seven or eight basal cells. So one of the primary indications in my practice is patients with multiple cancers. And I've been very happy with the results I've gotten with that. I think we also need to mention Gorlin syndrome patients. Um, I operate on those patients very infrequently now. I used to operate on them all the time. 
Um, when I'm talking to my colleagues or lecturing with residents, I tell them you cannot cure a basal cell carcinoma nevus syndrome patient with surgery. You can remove a cancer, but you can't cure that patient with surgery. So all of those patients in my practice get hedgehog inhibitors. And then finally, the last group, patients with multiple, you know, there's not good surgical candidates. They got blood thinners and artificial heart valves and defibrillators and they're on a walk, they got a walker and they're wearing oxygen. They're just not a great surgical candidate. And, and the drugs can be used palliatively in those patients. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to hold for a second because we want to uh, take a break and get a message from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Genentech, who has been studying skin cancer treatments for nearly 20 years. To learn more about our therapies, visit abcctreatment.com. So now, Brent, I'm back, and you know I have another question now that you're talking about. You've made a decision that you're going to utilize a, a hedgehog inhibitor for a patient. And so what do you think about in terms of how you start the therapy and circumventing what are some of the common side effects and things that we hear about, like aches and and things of that nature, aching, muscle aching, and things that, that patients experience. So there are tips to get around some of these side effects, and how often do they occur? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit on really one of the key questions with uh, using hedgehog inhibitors. You know, after we've made that important decision to treat a patient with a hedgehog inhibitor, how are we going to make the course of therapy um, more tolerable for the patient? There's well-described side effects that occur with all the hedgehog inhibitors. And uh, the, the main things that people complain about are muscle spasms. They can have taste alteration. You can have some hair loss, fatigue, weight loss. These are all pretty well known. Uh, the way I have uh, fixed these problems, as it were, in my practice is through using um, some dosing schedules that uh, have been really successful. I'm a firm believer in taking treatment breaks. And there's two ways to look at treatment breaks. You can say, well, I'm gonna take a break when the patient needs it. When the patient complains of, gosh, I'm having these side effects, I just don't wanna take the medicine anymore. I prefer to have built-in treatment breaks. I don't wait for the patient to get to the point where they wanna ask for one. So my standard formula for the vast majority of patients I treat with hedgehog inhibitors is they have two months of drug therapy, followed by a two-month break, followed by two months of drug therapy, followed by a two-month break, followed by two months of drug therapy. So my target for the vast majority of patients is six months of drug exposure spread out over 10 months. My general experience is the side effects start kicking in around that five, six-week time frame, um, but the patients know I've got two more weeks to go and then I get a break. So they just continue, they march on, continue, and then they get the break and then the side effects wash out during the break period. I've been really pleased with the uh, patient response to this uh, and it's been well well received in, in my patient population. So it, it has, do you feel that it's um, 
helped not having patients choose to discontinue the therapy because the side effects got to the point that I don't want to continue doing this. Or with an, especially with an older patient where they have a caretaker, a family member who's a caretaker, sometimes I found that they're real cautious about some of these things because they have a hard time watching mom or dad go through it. You know, uh, have you have you seen that? Absolutely. And, and like I said, the, this taking a break is, I think, the most important thing we can do. Um, you know, prior to figuring out this break business, and, and I kind of started toying around with it when a uh, trial, the Mikey trial, was published several years ago, where they, just, they showed that taking the break really does not decrease efficacy. And that's when I really started toying around with it and came up with this sort of my recipe, as it were. Um, other things that I do for every patient, and this has been described in the literature, is using L-carnitine. Helps tremendously with the muscle spasms. Uh, decreases the amount of spasms, decreases the severity of the spasms. And that's something the patients get uh, at the health food store or the supplement store. Um, I give my patients 500 milligrams of L-carnitine twice a day. It's made a big difference with the uh, muscle cramps. Yeah, I, w- I was gonna. I was gonna ask you: Is that something you give them right from the outset? Because I've heard about that. Uh, you just from the beginning, every patient gets it. Correct. So I don't wait for them to develop muscle spasms. Uh, I think it's more effective to start it prophylactically. So when a patient sees me and we've made that decision in the office, you're going to start Vismotigib. Um, just for an example, I say, "Hey, I want you to go start the L-carnitine today." Just logistically, by the time you do the paperwork and deal with the um, specialty pharmacy, it's going to be 7 to 14 days before that patient gets their medicine. So they load up before they start the medicine, before they start the, the hedgehog inhibitor. So I've, the last question I want to ask you, are, are there any situations where the patient may be on certain medications or have certain medical conditions where you wouldn't want to use uh, a a hedgehog inhibitor, or are there differences between the the different agents that are available in terms of selection, one versus the other? So the um, the, the short answer is um, not too many. There aren't many with vismogitib, particularly there aren't many clinically significant drug interactions, so I've not had any issues there. Um, the, the agents are similar. Um, there's a fasting requirement with sonodegib that is not present with vismodegib. Um, there's some blood work requirements with sonodegib that's not there with vismodegib. Um, but I've used both drugs, and um, they're, they're more similar than they are different. Um, I'll just be honest, I've got more experience with vismodegib. It's been out longer, so I tend to go with that one just out of familiarity. Um, like I said, that was approved in 2012, I think in January of 2012, and I treated my first patient in, in March of 2012. So I've just got more experience with that right. one. You're coming up on your 10-year anniversary of, of using yeah. uh, that particular therapy, not yeah. too far away. Well, thanks a lot because, uh, you know, I've had some experience and some knowledge, but you've you helped me expand on that with, with uh, having done a lot of it. So the practicality is really important. So have a great day, and I'm sure you have some other patients lined up, and I don't want to keep you from that. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Jim. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Genentech thanks you for joining this week's episode. To learn more about Genentech, visit www.gene.com.